Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I'd like to thank Bambi for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. HR manager salaries average better than $70,000 a year. Only Bambi gives you a dedicated HR manager for just $99 a month. So get your free HR compliance audit at Bambi.com gold. That's spelled Bambi, B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash gold. Well, the markets finished another week in the black. In fact, the S&P 500 managed a new all-time record high today. But what's far more significant than what's happening in the stock market is what's happening in the commodity market and what's happening in the bond market because both commodity prices and bond yields continue to soar. Let's talk about oil. I've been talking about oil on this podcast really since the price went negative back in March of last year, talking about how that was likely a massive bottom in the price of oil. Today, we closed at better than $59 a barrel. This is a new post-COVID high. We closed at $59.55, so only 45 cents away from $60 oil. And personally, I think that after maybe a brief consolidation around that $60 price, I think we can make a beeline for $80. And in fact, I think we have a good chance of seeing $100 oil before the end of the year. Now, again, the last time we had $100 oil was in 2014, but a lot has changed since 2014. The U.S. economy is in much worse shape and therefore a $100 barrel oil will be a far bigger burden now than it was back in 2014. First of all, we have a lot more Americans who are unemployed than were unemployed back then, but also we're producing a lot less of our own oil. There was a big collapse in oil production accelerated by the pandemic and that move into negative territory on the price of oil. So when the price hits $100 again, 
we will be more dependent than ever on imported foreign oil, which means our record trade deficits that are already surging, and I'm going to get into that a little bit more later in the podcast, but those surging trade deficits are going to be exacerbated by an even higher bill for oil. And of course, what's also going to be weighing heavily on domestic production is the Biden administration's antagonistic policies towards the oil and gas industry, which is going to make it more expensive to produce uh, and is going to discourage investors from funding uh, production in the oil and gas sector. But it's not just energy prices. Commodity prices continue to rise. Look at the price of lumber. Lumber prices hit a new high today, not just since the pandemic, but ever. We are looking at record high lumber prices. I think the price of lumber has more than doubled in the last year, meaning that before COVID, right? If you go a year ago, February, before everything, you know, hit the fan, lumber prices have more than doubled since February of 2020. In fact, lumber prices are up better than 10% in the last week alone. Now, what's driving the increase in lumber prices? Well, first of all, inflation, we're printing a lot of money and all this money obviously is being used to bid up the price of lumber. But in particular, a lot of the lumber demand is coming from housing. We're having a boom in home construction and in home remodeling. Now, that is also being funded by the Fed. It's the artificially low interest rates that are giving Americans the purchasing power to buy new homes and to add on to their existing homes. If Americans couldn't borrow money so cheaply, courtesy of the Fed, then we wouldn't be seeing this big boom in construction. But because we are getting all this money printing and all this cheap money, that is what is fueling uh, the boom. But also, as I pointed out many times in the past, the production has been disrupted by COVID. The mills that would be producing this lumber uh, were not producing as much lumber because a lot of their workers weren't on the job. They were either sick or they were staying home because they didn't want to get sick. Whatever the case was, there has been a lot less production. And so the prices are skyrocketing. In fact, this is already starting to have an impact on the home builders because they're having to rejigger a lot of their calculations based on the surging cost of producing uh, these homes. And in fact, the escalating cost of building new homes is what's also helping to push up the price of existing homes. Because obviously there's competition between the homes that are already here and the new homes that are going to be built. Now the new homes are gonna be newer and so maybe they'll be in better shape, but if it costs a lot more money to build those new homes, then that makes the existing homes more attractive because they've already been built. The lumber has already been used and it was purchased at much lower prices than what you have to pay today. And the demand is obvious, right? You have all these people who are moving out of the cities where they were living in apartments. They're moving into the country, into the suburbs, and they're buying land and they're building homes and there's lots of demand for wood. But also you have a lot of people who are living in smaller homes who used to go to an office every day and now they're working from home. Well, now they need more room, right? So they have to add on. Maybe they're going to build... Uh, a, a home office, 
or maybe they need more space for their kids. Maybe they got some kids that aren't going to school anymore. They're taking classes at home. So a lot of people want bigger homes, especially since they're not leaving their homes. We're not going out. We're not going to restaurants as much. We're not traveling as much. So Americans are staying at home. And so they want those homes that they're staying in to be bigger. And so people are trying to add on. And so you have all this massive demand being fueled by the Fed, being fueled by money printing and artificially low interest rates. And lumber prices are just surging. And there really is no end in sight. In fact, the only commodity prices right now that don't seem to be going up are precious metal prices, really gold and silver prices to the dismay of a lot of people who have bought gold and silver as an investment, right? A lot of my clients, you know, we own a lot of physical gold and silver. A lot of uh, people who listen to this podcast have been buying gold and silver from me at Shift Gold. Also, my gold fund, the Europe Pacific Gold Fund, we have a lot of gold mining companies. Obviously, we're betting on an increase in the price of gold and silver. And in our managed accounts, we have a lot of gold stocks. In fact, my value strategy owns a significant allocation to mining companies because I believe they represent a very good investment value at the current price. So the question is, if all these commodity prices are rising, why are gold and silver prices not also rising? And I think the reason for that is Wall Street expects the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates and tighten monetary policy sooner than everybody expects. I have been reading and I have been shown a lot of research reports that are circulating around uh, the investment banking houses, the hedge funds. There is now a narrative building that the strength of this so-called economic recovery that we have now, that the economy is going to be so much stronger than the Fed expects based on all this stimulus, that the Fed is actually going to end up tightening monetary policy, either tapering uh, their QE program or, I don't know, raising rates. And this is somehow going to be bullish for the dollar. So you now have this growing consensus that the dollar is going to strengthen due to this strong U.S. recovery that people think will be stronger than the recoveries in other countries. And it's going to lead the Fed to raise rates. And those higher rates are going to be negative for the price of gold and silver. This is what is out there. This is what people believe. Now, I think it's complete nonsense. None of it is true. But I think it is setting us up for a huge drop in the dollar and a big rise in the price of gold because there was a very strong consensus up until a couple of months ago that the dollar was going to go down. In fact, I think Wall Street had finally, from going to very bullish on the dollar earlier last year, to being very bearish. So we had a lot of people bearish on the dollar. And I think before the dollar can really get killed, we need to shake out some of those bears. We need to have more people bullish on the dollar to really take it lower because that's generally how markets work. They try to defy the consensus. Uh, They try to move in the direction that they're going, but get rid of as much excess baggage as possible. So I think it's a good sign that people have built this ridiculous narrative of a strengthening dollar and that is causing people to abandon some of their positions in gold and and gold mining stocks when the case for the dollar going down has actually never been stronger. 
But also I mentioned too that it's not just these commodity prices that are going up, but bond yields. Look at what happened to the yield on the 10-year today. This is a new high since the COVID collapse in yields. Remember, the yield on the 10-year got down to less than 0.4%. Today, it closed at 1.2%. More significantly though, the yield on the 30-year treasury is now back above 2%. The yield on the 30-year got down to 0.837. That was the low. And now we're at 2.003, so just above 2%. Now, that may not seem high. I mean, 2% historically is very low, but I think recovering to a 2% handle could be significant. There's going to be a lot of upward pressure on interest rates from here. I think the yield can go to 3 4% unless the Fed really steps up with an unprecedented increase in the amount of quantitative easing. But a lot of this backup in rates is also helping to validate what traders are expecting when it comes to uh, the Fed tightening and the gold market selling off. They're looking at these rates and they're thinking that they're a reflection of the strength of the U.S. economy. They're not. They're a reflection of inflation. And it's the rising inflation premium that is pushing up interest rates. And the fact of the matter is the Federal Reserve is not going to do anything to alleviate those inflationary pressures. Everything they're going to do is going to fuel the inflationary fire. In fact, when we got some economic numbers that came out today on consumer sentiment, which, by the way, dropped to well below consensus in January the Consumer Sentiment Index was at 79. And the consensus was for a improvement in sentiment. The consensus was for 80.9. And if you look at the range, the lowest number that people thought the sentiment might fall to was 79.5. You had other people that thought maybe it could go as high as 82.1. So that was kind of the range of expectations. Instead, consumer sentiment plunged all the way down to 76.2. So if this economy is getting so much better, why are consumers more worried about the economy now than they were before? In fact, one of the most interesting parts of the survey had to do with inflation expectations. Consumers now expect inflation to be up 3.3% year over year. So looking a year ahead, consumers expect that their cost of living is going to be up by 3.3%. Now, this is the highest that consumers have expected inflation to be since the summer of 2014. Now, at the same time, you got the Federal Reserve that isn't worried at all about inflation. The consumers seem to be worried quite a bit about it. That may be why their confidence levels are shrinking. It's because they're worried about a rising cost of living. And they're correct. I just think they're not worried enough. I think that A year from now, the cost of living will have risen by a lot more than 3.3%, regardless of what the CPI says. But remember, the Fed is not worried at all. I just talked about it on my last podcast. Powell isn't concerned at all. Here's a case where the consumers are far more likely to be accurate than is Fed. And in fact, one of the things that Powell said about inflation is he said, well, you know, it's all about expectations. 
Powell said he's not worried about inflation because he doesn't see rising inflation expectations. Well, has he not looked at these numbers uh, from the consumer confidence numbers from University of Michigan? If this is the biggest inflation or highest increase in prices that consumers have expected since July 2014, why isn't Powell taking that into consideration, especially since he places uh, so much weight on expectations? Well, consumers are expecting a lot more inflation than the Fed. And the Fed claims that they couldn't care less, that they're not even worried, which means that that rate is likely to be even higher. And in addition to dealing with the rising cost of living, more and more Americans continue to lose their jobs. You know, we got the uh, weekly jobless claims yesterday, and the consensus was for an improvement, meaning that fewer Americans would file for unemployment claims than had filed the prior week. And they were correct. We did get an improvement, but we only got an improvement because of the upward revision to the prior month. In fact, the actual number that we got was higher than the original number that was reported for the prior week. So we actually have more people claiming unemployment benefits than we thought claimed unemployment benefits last week, except we were wrong because even more people actually filed than we were originally told. The prior week, supposedly, initially, we were told that 779,000 claims were filed. Now that was revised up to 812,000 claims. The consensus was for a drop this week to 760,000. Instead, we went to 793,000, which was a drop, but only from the upwardly revised 812. It's actually higher than the 779 that people expected us to drop from. So the bottom line is the unemployment situation continues to get worse. And here we are in mid-February. People are taking vaccines, right? This is supposed to be the reopening. This is supposed to be this strong recovery that Wall Street now thinks is going to drive the Fed to raise interest rates or shrink its balance sheet, even though Powell just told everybody they're not even thinking about shrinking their balance sheet and they're never going to raise rates. I mean, that's exactly what the Fed is saying. Yet somehow Wall Street has concocted this idea. We're going to get some kind of surprise tightening based on this you know, economic boom, which is not happening. As you know from listening to my podcast, running a small business, especially in the United States, can really kill you. You got wrongful termination suits, discrimination suits, minimum wage requirements, other labor regulations, and HR manager salaries ain't cheap at an average of $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in. That's Bambi spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. It was created specifically for small business owners like you and me. We can get a dedicated HR manager crafting our HR policy and maintain our compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to one of your greatest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or for real-time chats. From onboarding to termination, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. It's month-to-month, no hidden fees, and you can cancel anytime you want. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time dealing with HR and compliance. Let Bambi do the work for you. Get your free HR audit today. 
So go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold. Spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. In fact, I think some of the best proof that there is no recovery, that this whole recovery is a mirage, can be seen with what's going on with the container shortage in the United States. Right now, there is a huge shortage of containers for U.S. exporters to ship their products overseas. Now, why is there a shortage? Because so many of the containers that are bringing products to the United States from Asia are immediately being boarded onto other ships and sent back to Asia empty before American exporters have the opportunity to load their merchandise on the containers, they're already gone back to Asia. And why is this happening? This is happening because of an unprecedented surge in demand for imports, particularly imports from Asia and China in particular. Now, a lot of Keynesian economists or people on Wall Street that really don't think this through They look at this and they think, oh, we have this strong economy, right? Where Americans are buying all this stuff. And so we must have such a strong economy where we're sucking in all these products from the rest of the world. That's not the case. The case is that this massive increase in imports shows you just how weak the U.S. economy really is because we need more support from stronger economies overseas than ever before. It's because the U.S. economy is so weak, we're not producing enough stuff. And so now we rely more heavily on those other economies abroad that are stronger than our economy that have the ability to produce the stuff that we can't. And in fact, one of the reasons that Americans are spending so much money is because the Federal Reserve is printing the money and giving it to them. I mean, the real story behind this so-called American recovery is unemployed Americans spending money the Fed prints to buy products the Chinese produce. That is not a recovery. That is a bubble. This is a recipe for disaster. The trade deficit is about to explode to unprecedented levels. In fact, already the cost of bringing goods in from Asia to America is 10 times as high as the cost of shipping stuff from America to Asia because nobody's shipping everything. It's all going the other way. In fact, this is what's going on. The demand for containers is so strong, right, in in China that they can't wait. The shipping companies can't wait a week or two, which is what is normally required for those empty containers to be taken off the ships and then reloaded with U.S. stuff. And a lot of that stuff is just agricultural products or scrap metal. You know, we don't manufacture products and send them to China. We're like a colony of China. We send them, you know, raw materials, stuff like that. But it takes a while to get those materials loaded onto these containers. And the shippers can't wait because there's so many orders. They need those containers back in Asia and they've run out of them. And again, remember, during the pandemic, 
the production of containers slowed down. And by the way, all the containers are made in China, right? America doesn't make any containers. So there's no way we can alleviate the container shortage by building containers because we don't have any factories that are able to build them. So we're completely dependent on China for the containers that all this trade is affected in. But again, because the production of those was slowed down and now because the American economy is so crippled and so weak, there's all these extra containers that are needed because maybe stuff that we used to be able to make ourselves, we're not making that anymore. And so we have to buy more and more stuff. I mean, what better proof do you have that America lost the trade war? I mean, it wasn't just a loss. We were obliterated. We were annihilated in the trade war, right? I mean, this is like Rome and Carthage. That's how bad it was. And now the Chinese are having to, you know, supply all these goods to the U.S. and they've, they've run out of containers. Now, I don't know what's going to happen here because obviously if Americans want to export, they're going to have to start bidding up the price of these containers. They're going to have to start paying more money. But right now, maybe they don't have the margins. I don't know. But there's going to be massive upward pressure on prices from increasing um, transportation costs. And of course, COVID is also adding extra costs because a lot of these products, I don't know what the process is, going through some kind of quarantine or they have to make sure that there's, you know, nobody's infected with anything. But the costs are going up for all sorts of reasons. But I expect shipping rates, container, all this stuff is going to explode higher as well as all these other costs. But what this shows you is that this whole thing is an illusion. In fact, I was watching an interview on CNBC with a guy who was down at the port of Charleston. And the guy was saying, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen so many imports. He was saying like, you know, for every one container that goes out with stuff, three or four come in. He said, this is unprecedented. And, you know, they're reporting on this. This is a business news channel. They have no idea what they're reporting on. I mean, this is proof of the entire phony nature of this so-called economic recovery. The American economy is on life support without the rest of the world you know, we would implode. Prices would be skyrocketing. People are saying, why aren't consumer prices going up more? Because the world is is dumping, you know, all these consumer goods into our market. Our market is flooded with imports, and that is what is keeping a lid on prices. But that lid isn't going to stay there for long because the dollar is going to tank. See, that's what all these people don't seem to get who think that we're going to have tighter monetary policy and a stronger dollar. That's impossible. This recovery is all about imports. It's all about printing money and spending it on imports. That means the dollar has to go down. But it also means the Fed can't raise rates. What these guys on Wall Street still don't understand is the only reason that there is a so-called recovery is because of the cheap money. It's because of the deficits. It's because all these unemployed people are getting sent checks. It's because people are making more money unemployed than they used to make when they had jobs. None of this can continue if the Fed tightens. The only way that it continue is if the Fed eases. They have to print even more money. They have to keep interest rates at zero. They have to increase the size of QE. Because if they allow bond yields to rise, the whole thing's going to collapse. The housing market's going to collapse. Everything that they built, this whole house of cards economy is going to implode if they actually allow rates to rise, 
which is what Wall Street expects. I mean, these guys are still living in the past. They still think it's business as usual and that the Fed is going to be able to wave its magic wand and make all the problems disappear and, and, and make everything great for the people who are buying the momentum stocks. It ain't going to happen. We have reached the end of the line. It's just that the mainstream, the establishment, they haven't figured this out yet. And that is why we have had a sideways movement here, a stall out in the rally in gold and silver and mining stocks. And really what I think this is, is a last opportunity, right? Before the train leaves the station for good, this is an opportunity for more people to get on board. While Wall Street is asleep at the switch, here's your chance to add to your positions, you know, put more money into the Euro Pacific Gold Fund, buy more gold and silver stocks on your own, buy more physical gold and silver, get more money out of the dollar because the dollar hasn't collapsed. While everyone on Wall Street now expects a rally, it's going sideways. In fact, despite the increase in uh, bond yields and this expectation of stronger economic growth, the dollar index was barely up today. It was basically flat and it stands at 90.46 or 4.5 is where we close the week not too far from the 52-week low. I mean, the lowest we got in the index was just below uh, 90. I think 89.21 was the absolute low that we hit back in January. So we're not much above that low, despite you know all this expectation for a stronger dollar. And of course, beneath the surface, you know that's a lot the euro. The euro is pulled back, but you take a look at some of these other currencies, like the uh, Australian dollar continues to hit uh, 52-week highs against the U.S. dollar. So it's only really the euro and a few other currencies uh, that have pulled back. And they haven't pulled back much, despite this renewed bullishness, which I think is going to be squashed uh, by what is going to be unfolding over the course of this year. And getting back to the topic of the trade deficits and the container shortages, again, trying to spin this into a positive for the U.S. economy is nonsense. This is the way the Keynesians uh, turn economics on its head and put the cart before the horse. The reality is it's the strong economies that are able to produce stuff. It's the weak economies that can't. Anybody can spend money. You don't have to have a strong economy to spend money, especially if you're borrowing it, and especially if you don't even have to borrow it because the Fed can print it. And the reason the Fed can print it is because foreigners will still accept it because the dollar is still the reserve currency. So that is what is powering this whole phony recovery. It is the ability for us to print dollars that the rest of the world will accept for all of their stuff. Well, their willingness to do that, I think, is going to come to an end because we are asking them to accept so many dollars, right? They're, we're asking the world to supply us with so much merchandise that that means that the rest of the world is going to have to do without all this stuff, right? Because if they don't have the extra capacity, especially since COVID has taken some of it offline, they can't keep diverting all of their production to America. So what is going to ultimately bring this to an end is going to be the crash of the dollar. So that means Americans will now be priced out of these markets. That's what's going to stop it all is going to be that Americans can no longer afford to buy all the stuff that everybody else is buying because the dollar is going to get marked down. And more of these products that are produced in Asia are going to stay in Asia. They're going to get consumed in Asia. And Asian people will have the benefit 
of that increased consumption and they will have higher standards of living. Americans will have to suffer because we're going to have to do without things. We're going to have to figure out how to make do without all this stuff because we're not going to be able to afford to import it and we can't make it because we don't have the capacity to do that. So this, again, is going to be a rude awakening for Americans and it's going to be a rude awakening for all those investors out there who have baked this phony recovery into their investment scenarios and are so bullish on the U.S. economy and the dollar, they're going to find out that they bet wrong and they bet wrong in a big way. I also wanted to remind everybody or inform everybody, it's not really a reminder, I joined Clubhouse. Remember I talked about that app because that's where Elon Musk was. He was on Clubhouse talking, you know, about uh, about Bitcoin. I think he's been on Clubhouse again. So I finally decided to join Clubhouse. I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. I haven't actually tried out the app, but I'm up there. So if you're on Clubhouse and you want to follow me, you can do it. My username or handle is Peter Schiff One. Now the reason I'm Peter Schiff One and not Peter Schiff is because somebody already took Peter Schiff. Uh, and I looked at that guy's uh, you know, page. I think he's a crypto guy, judging by who he's following. He's only got one person following him. So not that many people were fooled by this guy because he's got a different name, even though his, uh, you know, his ID is Peter Schiff. So I'm Peter Schiff 1. I've got a black and white photo. It's the same photo that I've got on my Twitter page. This guy has got a, a color photo of me. So I have the black and white photo. And before I started to record this podcast, I had 322 followers. So I don't have that many people following me. So I need to get a few more people following me before I do anything. Because if I do something, I want to make sure that there's an audience there to participate. Oh, and by the way, while I'm talking about followers, my Twitter followers really took a jump this week. I went through 350,000. In fact, as I'm recording this podcast today, I'm almost at 357,000 Twitter followers. So quite a few people have started to follow me. I appreciate everybody who's helping me get followers. If you've just started to follow me, thanks a lot. If you've been following me and you've been telling your friends about it, thanks for that. You know, continue to spread the word. You know, the more people who are following uh, the things that I'm saying on social media, uh, the more likely it is that we're going to influence a, a, a greater percentage of the American public. My YouTube audience is also growing. I'm almost at 434,000 subscribers to my YouTube channel. So making a beeline for 500,000. Hopefully I'll be there before too long. So if you're not already a subscriber to the YouTube channel, make sure and subscribe. I know a lot of people listen to the podcast on Shift Radio, so they may not necessarily listen to the podcast on YouTube. But remember, I got a lot of other stuff on YouTube too. We put stuff up there that's not on uh, uh, Shift Radio because I have some other video content that's only available on YouTube. And again, my YouTube channel, Shift Clips, still not very many people have subscribed to Shift Clips. You'll notice we're putting out a lot of content. So the people who have subscribed are getting a lot of short clips to look at. These are great clips to share uh, with your friends. So that's why I want more and more people to actually start subscribing to Shift Clips. So they see these clips and they can share them because people are more likely to listen to a three or four minute clip uh, than a 50 minute uh, podcast. But if they listen to a few of these short clips, they may start listening to entire podcasts. But I want to finish up today's podcast by talking a little bit about this impeachment fiasco going on right now in Washington, D.C., where the Democrats are impeaching and trying to convict former President 
Donald Trump, which makes no sense whatsoever. And to me, there is no constitutional authorization or precedent for impeaching a president who is no longer in office because the sole purpose of impeachment is to remove a sitting president from office if he does not remove himself or is not removed by the voters, which in the case of Donald Trump already happened. Donald Trump has already been removed from office. The voters removed him because they did not reelect him, right? Or the Electoral College removed him because he did not win uh, in the Electoral College. So Donald Trump is no longer president, which means impeaching him would not only be a waste of time, but there is no constitutional authorization for the impeachment to take place. And all you have to do is read the Constitution for yourself to see this is clear. Article 2 deals with impeachment. Section 4 of Article 2 reads, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So that's where it defines what impeachment is for. Impeachment is for removal from office. So if you have a president or a vice president that you want to remove from office, the only way that you can forcibly remove them is through impeachment. Then if you read further down in section three, it says judgments in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Now, it's clear that it says that the only thing that an impeachment can do is remove you from office and prevent you from holding office in the future. And what that means is, let's say the president was convicted of a crime and removed from office through impeachment for committing a crime. They don't go to jail, right? There is no actual criminal or civil penalty as a result of being impeached. The only thing that happens if you're impeached is that you are removed from office and you can't uh, hold any future offices. If you actually committed a crime and somebody wants to punish you from it, charges can still be brought against you criminally in either a federal court or a state court. Right? So that's what would happen. You cannot be put in jail based on an impeachment, but there can be an actual trial with a jury and new charges can be filed. But here's what I think a lot of the Democrats and maybe even some of the Republicans are trying to do. They're jumping on the second part of this that says that they would be disqualified from holding office in the future, meaning that if Trump were to be impeached, he couldn't run for re-election. Because remember, Donald Trump has only served one term. There is nothing in the Constitution that prevents Donald Trump from serving a second term if he's elected. However, if he is impeached, then he is no longer eligible to run for office. But the problem is the Constitution doesn't say that you can impeach presidents who are no longer in office for the purpose of preventing them from seeking office again. It is very clear that it says they can only impeach a president to remove him from office. And if he is impeached, 
the only consequences are that he is removed from office and that he cannot seek future offices. It doesn't say that he will be removed from office or that he can't seek future offices because if the framers had used the word or instead of the word and, then maybe the Democrats would have a point that the penalty for impeachment is you're removed from office or you can't seek future office. That's not what it says. You're removed from office and you can't seek future offices. That means that you had to be removed first, which means you're in office when you're impeached. And in fact, all you have to do is look back to the last president who actually would have been impeached, right? Not Bill Clinton. I mean, Bill Clinton was impeached, but not convicted, right? So he stayed in office. But Richard Nixon, right, they had the goods on Richard Nixon for the Watergate break-in. And it was pretty clear that there wasn't enough support in the Republican Party for Richard Nixon uh, to survive an impeachment trial in the United States Senate. So rather than going through the embarrassment of an impeachment, Richard Nixon resigned. He removed himself from office. Well, was he impeached? No. I mean, the minute he removed himself from office and Gerald Ford became president, I mean, that was it. It was over. There's no need to impeach a president who has already been removed from office. The whole purpose of it is to get rid of a president who won't resign. Right? So, But he's not there anymore. So there is no constitutional authorization to impeach President Trump. The whole thing is pure politics, maybe not just on the part of the Democrats. A lot of people overlook, I think, the fact that there are a lot of Republicans privately, privately, who would love to see Donald Trump impeached if that impeachment means he can't run for re-election because he is still a very popular person in the Republican Party. Despite the fact that he didn't really keep any of his promises and he lied about everything, you still have a lot of people who like Trump. In fact, probably now more so than ever before because they see him as anti-establishment. And unfortunately, he really wasn't, but the establishment doesn't like him. So I guess that's good enough, right? The, The enemy of your enemy is your friend. And so there are a lot of Republicans who probably want to run for office themselves, but they don't want to have to run against Trump because they know that they'll lose. So if they can somehow remove Trump as a potential competitor, then that moves up a lot of other Republicans, you know, in the pecking order as far as who might get the nomination to run in 2024. But my point that I'm trying to make here is that if you actually read the Constitution and try to... Um, figure out what the framers intended impeachments to be about, right? It was not about punishing ex-presidents, right? Even if you began the impeachment process while the president was technically still in office, you know, he had a couple of days left at his lame duck session. It doesn't matter. It's not about revenge. Now that Trump is no longer president, he doesn't have to be removed from office. And if what he did while he was president was a crime, then he can be charged by any prosecutor. The Justice Department can charge him. Donald Trump is a private citizen, and he is not absolved from criminal behavior. If you committed a crime while you were president, you're not carte blanche. You know, if it turned out that Donald Trump committed murder 
while he was president. It's not like he got away with it. It's not like they can't charge him for murder just because he happened to be president when he um, committed the crime. No, I mean, he's a private citizen. You know, now there are some things that you can't do to a sitting president and you have to wait for him to leave office civilly before you can come after him. Uh, but, you know, that is the proper forum. If somebody thinks Trump committed a crime, you know, in his final days in office, then somebody needs to charge him, whether it's on the federal level or the state level, wherever they think the crime was committed. But I don't think there was a crime. And I don't think the Democrats believe it either. But they're trying to take advantage of the situation. But again, in so doing, they simply expose their own hypocrisy. I mean, go back to the 2016 election. How many Democrats said the election results were invalid? The election was stolen. It was hacked by the Russians. They were accusing the president of conspiring with Russia to steal the election. There were a lot of Democrats that didn't want Trump certified. They didn't want the Electoral College uh, to vote for him. I mean, just think back. It was only four years ago that people were talking about this. In fact, the Democrats were demanding that Donald Trump be impeached even before he was sworn in. They've been trying to impeach him for his entire presidency, and now they're still trying to impeach him even though he's no longer president. That shows you what a big farce this is. And as far as trying to incite violence, you look at what a lot of these big Democrats have said over the years trying to incite violence against Republicans, no problem, right? This is a complete hypocrisy. You have high-profile Democrats, elected officials, and in the media. I mean, look at what was said during the riots uh, following the um, George Floyd incident and Black Lives Matter. I mean, look at what all these Democrats said to incite additional violence, to, to justify it, to validate it. Right? Complete hypocrisy now uh, when they're pointing the finger at Donald Trump. In fact, another stark example of the hypocrisy of the left had to do with an actress, Gina Carano. And, you know, I really didn't know much about her. I mean, I had been watching her on The Mandalorian. I've been, I watched that show on Disney Plus with, uh, with my kids. And so I knew about her as an actress. I didn't really know much about her past and, and her fighting. So I learned a little bit about her as a result of the fact that she got fired from Lucasfilms because of an uproar on the left. There was a movement to get her fired because of her tweets. And the tweet that supposedly did her in was where she compared what happened in Nazi Germany to what's happening now in the United States, not to say that what's happening now is the equivalent of what happened in Nazi Germany. She did not try to say that what we're doing now is like gassing, uh, you know, murdering uh, six million Jews. She did not try to make that comparison. Her comparison had to do with the attitude that the German government helped instill among the German people against Jews. They got Germans to dislike Jews so that, you know, the public was was against the Jews long before they started putting them into concentration camps. And she asked a question. She didn't even make a statement, but she's basically asked a question. How is that different? How is trying to get the public to dislike somebody for their religious beliefs? How is that different than trying to encourage the public to dislike people for their political beliefs, right? She didn't even say 
that she didn't make a statement. She asked a question, like which a lot of people do on Twitter, because when you ask a question, you probably get more responses. So she's, you know, she's trying to provoke people to think, hey, wait a minute, are we going down a slippery slope? Because this is how the Nazis started. This is how they were able to create an environment where the government was able to churn the Jews because initially they turned the public, the neighbors, against their own neighbors, right? They began to get people to distrust the Jews. And she's saying, hey, wait a minute, this is what's happening now, but politics. You're seeing people on the left becoming increasingly intolerant of people who have a different political view, not a different religious view, but a different political view. And they're becoming very, very hostile. And she points that out. And what she's saying is, hey, we need to learn from the mistakes of history because we're going down a slippery slope. She didn't say that it was going to lead to concentration camps and to uh, conservatives being murdered, but she is saying we don't know where it's going to go, right? But where it's going could obviously be bad. And I thought it was a very valid point. And I think a lot of people make Nazi references that I really don't think are appropriate. Uh, But in this particular case, I thought that what she wrote on Twitter was on point. And I thought it was food for thought that people should really think about. I mean, I'm Jewish, right? I was not offended at all by her reference to Nazi Germany. You know, I don't want people to forget about what happened in Germany. I don't want to bury that, sweep it under the rug. I mean, as bad as it was, we at least need it as an example We have to learn from the mistakes of history if we want to avoid repeating those mistakes. So I don't want to jump on anybody just for bringing up Nazi Germany. As I said, as a Jew, I'm not offended by anything that Gina wrote on Twitter. But as an American, I'm offended as hell by the left's reaction to what Gina tweeted. In fact, I'm even more offended by Lucasfilm's decision to fire her because of it, or the fact that they're pretending that they're so outraged by what she tweeted, when in reality, they're just upset at losing ratings. They were worried that people might cancel their Disney Plus subscription if they didn't fire her. So they bowed down to the political pressure, but also caved in to the political correctness pressure to pretend that they were offended by something that clearly wasn't offensive at all. But what was offensive to me as an American is this reaction. And again, this is what Gina is trying to warn us against because what is happening to our culture, the way Americans are turning on other Americans simply by virtue of their beliefs and turning anything they say into something that's hard and offensive and they need to be fired because of this belief, this is exactly the slippery slope that she was pointing out we are in danger of sliding down. But anyway, because she did this, right, there was a big movement on Twitter, you know, hashtag, you know, cancel Agena, right? We got to fire her. And so all of a sudden, Lucasfilms says they're going to fire her. And in their public statement where they announced that they were firing her, they said that they were doing it because of the abhorrent comments that she made on her social media posts. And of course, she ended up deleting the comment. I mean, she had so much protest, she actually deleted it. So it wasn't even there, but other people took screenshots of it and they were spreading it around. And so they said this is abhorrent and unacceptable. And of course, there's nothing abhorrent about it at all. I mean, I'm Jewish. 
right? If I'm not offended by it, why is Lucasfilms offended by it? This is them. They're virtue signaling. They are feigning outrage by um, siding with this left-wing mob, these intolerant people on the left who can't accept somebody that has a different political opinion from their own. In fact, let me read her entire tweet and you can decide for yourself how abhorrent it is. Here's what she wrote. Jews were beaten in the streets, not by Nazi soldiers, but by their neighbors, even by children. And quote, because history is edited, most people today don't realize that to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbors hate them simply for being Jews. How is that any different from hating somebody for their political views? Question mark. End quote. That's it. That's what she wrote. And I think the way the left reacted to her tweet and the way Lucasfilms fired her in and of itself proves uh, the point that she was trying to make. This is the intolerance that we have bred, right? Where you can't, you can't have a different political opinion. Just like, oh, you know, you can't have a deli- different religious belief. You have to believe in God the exact same way that we do or you're a bad person. Right. So people who are not liberal, who don't believe in this liberal political agenda, well, they're bad people. Well, once the Jews were bad people because they were Jewish, well, then it was obviously easier for the Nazis to do what they did. So first, what we're doing is we're taking conservatives and we're vilifying them. They are bad people. What's next? Right. Maybe we're going to get, you know, we're going to be terrorists. Right? Maybe, you know, maybe expressing certain political opinions is going to be qualified as a domestic terrorist. I don't think they're going to be executing us, but who knows? Maybe they'll be incarcerating us. This is the slippery slope that I think Gina Carano is correctly pointing out. But the hypocrisy comes from the fact that another actor on The Mandalorian, I think it's the main character, Pedro Pascal, and this is, I don't know, six months or a year before Gina's comments, He put out comments making Nazi comparisons. He had one tweet where he tweeted out losers in 1865, and he had a Confederate flag. Losers in 1945, he had a Nazi flag. Losers in 2020, he has a MAGA hat. So here he is comparing Trump supporters to Nazis and slave-owning Confederates. Then he had another tweet showing uh, Jews in a concentration camp 1944 Germany, and in the same tweet, he had a picture of American children behind bars, America 2018, in referencing to Trump's policies. So he is basically saying that Donald Trump is like Adolf Hitler, and he is putting people in jail the same way Hitler put people in concentration camps. And nothing happened to this guy, right? He made Nazi comparisons outright, worse than the one that Gina Carano made. Yet there was no call to have that guy fired, and he wasn't fired. He still has a job. So if you are on the left and you want to call anyone who is conservative a Nazi, right, and compare them to Adolf Hitler, that's perfectly fine. You can do that all you want. But if you're a conservative and you simply point out something that happened in Nazi Germany that reminds you of something that's happening in modern America— without even directly making the comparison or calling anybody a Nazi or an Adolf Hitler, and you're fired. 
I mean, that is complete and total hypocrisy, which again simply proves the point that Gina was trying to make, and which is why I started following her myself. And I would encourage other people to follow her too, because as much as the left wants to cancel her, we need to do everything that we can to make sure that she is not canceled. Anyway, that's it for today's podcast. I know we have a holiday weekend. The markets are closed on Monday uh, for President's Day. And over the weekend, we all have a holiday to celebrate. We have Valentine's Day. So hopefully everybody has a Valentine to share the day with. And if you don't have one, well, you still got some time because it's not until Sunday. Although with COVID, it's not quite as easy to meet people as it used to be. But hey, you still got the internet. Thank you.